Father in heaven, as we have this last time together in this seminar, we are asking for your presence, for your inspiration, for your wisdom, for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I'm going to start with uh, my story of a, of a poor person. That's kind of my thing here. And this one is uh, from Cambodia, where I've never been. But I got this, uh, there uh, a, a Seventh-day Adventist by the name of Tim Maddox and his wife Wendy. Uh, many years ago went there and they started in an orphanage there. Well, they went there to do evangelistic work. They ended up starting an orphanage. And uh, two handouts right there, young man. And everything like that. And so here's a story he shared with me. He said, During a visit to the border town of Osmich, Wendy and I were told a sad story of three orphans who had been taken in by a local family. Two uh, handouts there. Two handouts. The youngest, a two and a half year old girl, yeah, maybe you better stand here, had reportedly been bought for ready $3.75 U.S. That's her right there, Ui. She had been uh, sold for $3.75. These poor kids are allegedly beaten, made to work as slaves, and forced to eat with the pigs. The authorities have tried to catch this family, abusing the children, but unsuccessfully. I suspect they have not tried very hard, but wanted us to think well of them. Sadly, there was nothing we could do for these poor children, except pray that God would intervene. Wendy and I prayed that if it was the Lord's will, that we, he would deliver the young girl into our hands. We left Osmich and waited on the Lord's timing and will. God heard us and moved upon the heart of the girl's auntie. She had sold her niece to a wealthier family after the girl's mother had died of AIDS in January. Shortly after we left Osmich, the auntie went to see how her niece was going and discovered the girl malnourished, scarred from beatings, and often made to sleep on the ground under a tree. She demanded the girl back, but was refused. Returning to her shack of a home, she asked her husband to take a gun and get the child back. He did, and the child was handed over with no questions asked. I was then notified by a concerned neighbor that the girl was now able to enter the orphanage. The motorbike and I had a pleasant journey up to Osmich, stopping in at some villages along the way to assess a number of orphan girls. On reaching Osmich, I sought out the concerned neighbor who had originally told me of this little girl, and he led me to her auntie's home. There I found a fat-bellied, skinny-armed girl, brought about from malnutrition. She was silent, showing no open fear of my presence or my blue eyes which often brings out shrieks of fear from the brown-eyed children. Her name is Ui. Her father was a soldier but died a couple years ago. The people said it was AIDS. As is usually the case with AIDS, the mother died a year or so later, leaving Ui an only child in the hands of her poverty-stricken auntie. I'm sure the auntie had good intentions when she gave Ui to a wealthier family, although she may have feared Ui was HIV positive and would bring trouble to the family. Paperwork completed, I placed Ui in front of me on the motorbike, and we began the 170-kilometer-plus uh, journey home. First stop was at a market restaurant for my lunch. The auntie had assured me that Ui had already eaten. For a small girl who had just eaten, she certainly downed a lot of food at the restaurant and continues to down food like every meal is her last. 
We took a slow ride down the mountain to Shurkram, a village about 20 kilometers from Osmich, where we have a church. The road is such that most of you would not wish to take your four-wheel drive along it should you have one. Ui whimpered momentarily twice, but otherwise remained silent, choosing to fall asleep about three kilometers from Shurkram. This created a whole new problem. It's one thing to travel a four-wheel drive track on an off-road motorcycle with a two-year-old, is another with a sleeping two-year-old. I could not stop as there were large black clouds threateningly coming down the mountain after us. Saturday morning I preached to a group of 40 and then proceeded to my next preaching appointment some 35 kilometers away. This appointment met, I began the last 110 kilometers of the journey at 3.30 p.m. Sabbath afternoon. I tried several tricks such as using a scarf to tie her to me like a lap belt in a car to make, a, to make steering a motorbike with a two-year-old asleep in front of me manageable. Saturday evening was 50 kilometers left before reaching home. I finally found the solution. I buttoned her torso and head into my shirt. She kept comfortable and I had both hands free. She slept comfortably and I had both hands free. We arrived safely home about 8 p.m. Uwe well rested and myself thoroughly exhausted. <laughs> Uwe has now settled down in one of the orphanage houses and appears to be doing well. She was tested for HIV yesterday and turned up negative. Praise the Lord. And this is the girl later. Yeah. Precious human being. So we're going to talk about orphanages a little bit today. That's our little introduction. And, uh, but I didn't do my stories yesterday, so I'm going to do another story today because today we're going to talk about the one thing that we can never leave out, and that's the power of the gospel in people's lives. And, uh, and so I'm going to tell you about uh, a young lady that uh, I had the privilege of meeting uh, and I could have told you her name like three minutes ago, but it just left me. And uh, she uh, lives in Palawan in the Philippines and uh, up on the mountain where there's a lot of demon possession, a lot of spirits, so on and so forth. And uh, the missionaries there, uh, the Americans, an organization called PAMAS, uh, they, they you know, are working in that village, we're working in that village and still are. Uh, where, where they have a little school. I wish I had time to tell you and show you pictures about that. But anyway, uh, this little girl, here's a picture of, uh, this is Wendy, the American missionary, and her two helpers. They would, they, when this girl, when these spirits would come upon her, they literally have to hold her down. She would, you know, destroy things, hurt herself, whatever. And uh, this went on for a long, long time, many, many episodes. They just prayed and prayed and... and uh, Finally, this, this girl, after much talking and so on, she gave her heart to Jesus. I mean, these, these spirits would literally talk through her to, to the missionaries. Take me up on the mountain. You know, well, that's where the spirits are. You know, and uh, yeah, but um, when I had the privilege of meeting her about a, a year ago or so, this is, this is the same girl. Giletta is her name, Giletta. Wonderful girl. She worked in the home there where I stayed and just uh, was a ready uh, helper. By the way, after, you know, she was just starting the first grade then when I was there because the way she's been, 
a lot of problems in her family and so on. But, uh, and so that illustrates, Gilletta is certainly poor, poverty-stricken. Uh, but all the, you know, counseling and financial, you know, uh, classes and so on and so forth, all that, you know, is going to be very, very little help until, especially in her case, until she came to have a living experience with Jesus. And that's where she's at now. And like I said, uh, just last year she started the first grade, and uh, they're working with her there. In the Philippines they have a wonderful program. The public, uh, the, the government actually has started where uh, they can do a, kind of a home school. Uh, the government people visit them and they have tests, but because there's so many people like her that, that uh, you know, have never gone to school at all. Okay, so uh, with that said, i got to get my phone here. It's got my schedule on it. With that said, I want to just spend a few moments here and some uh, practical things. Let me find my email here. All right. Ooh, I'm one minute behind. All right. Okay, just a quick uh, review here then, okay? Quick review. This is supposed to be five minutes. I might have to make it four here. Obviously, and I hope you know the message to come through here that number one principle is we remember every human being. Uh, think of little Uwe that I showed right in the beginning here. Some of you missed it. Here she was, living as a slave, three, you know, three, three and a half years old, beaten, starving. And uh, by the way, Tim Maddock, you know, he, he told me about this story. He sent me this story. And he told me, he told me, he said, sometimes I, I shudder to think. Because, you know, I mean, he was used by God to save this girl's life. He said, I shudder to think. I mean, he was, they were living a comfortable life in Australia. I shudder to think if I had not listened to the voice of God in going to Cambodia. That's just one student. They have a hundred of them there. I have met grown students uh, that came from that, because they have a school there. Uh, and uh, wonderful Christian young ladies. Fine. Anyway, so every human being made in God's image. Okay. This is number one principle. We, we can't short people. We have to realize they themselves have the power to think and do. This is key. Whatever help we give them that smothers that is very short term indeed. So then, that being said, I'm going to give you about a six-week class or six-month class in two and a half minutes here, okay? <laughs> so one thing we want to do is help people to clarify their own values. This is what they're going to need to stand, to go through when the going gets tough. To know their values. You know, whether it's love for their family, uh, you know, love for God, whatever it is. To, and not to tell them their values, but to help them to identify their values. Yes? Well, it's a little bit separate from that. Um, that's, that's another very wonderful thing, and I should have that up here. But it's, it's, it's uh, you know, what, what do you see the benefits? If you were to start getting up at 6 o'clock every morning, what do you see the benefits? What would be the benefits of that? 
well, I would study my Bible more and have more time for this. Right. Did you want to answer, comment on that question, Joanne? Really fast? I think values are the big why. The big why. Okay. Why is this really, really important to me? Very good. Is that the recipients or the missionaries? Well, that's the people we're working with. Okay? And here's a big one here. You know, don't, you know, we have a tendency to say, oh, oh, man, you're behind in rent. You, you don't have a car. Oh, man. That is a needs-based focus. And we, you know, we need to learn those things, but we want an asset-based focus. Okay. Well, what, you know, what, you know, uh, um, what type of work have you done in the past? What are your skills? And what are you good at? And, and along with that, you know, what is working in your life? Or, and, or what has worked well in the past? To really bring these things to the surface. Because our goal is, is to help them help themselves. All right. I really have a tight schedule today. And I apologize for that. But I have a lot of important things. And, uh, okay, I handed out this article right here. And this is written by a young lady, uh, I mean a college student, Adventist, I guess post-past college student, but still a young lady. Everybody should have got one of these. This is uh, volunteerism, more harm than good, okay? And uh, as it says there, this is uh, Heather Ruiz, who in August 2013 traveled through West Africa as a journalist for ADRA. Uh, and uh, tells a little background there. And there, uh, a couple paragraphs down, it tells, it says there, uh, you know, she enters this orphanage and it says, you hear the question, who are you? She says, the voice caught me first unmistakable in her accent. The journalist from ADRA, I called earlier about stopping by. She said, I found myself looking at, well, a stereotypical American college student in all her glory, pink tank top, shouting Abercrombie like a tagline to her expressionless face. Ray-Ban slipped into the highlighted a highlight streak ponytail. I almost expected an iced Starbucks to appear in her hand. Oh, I'm just here for a week before we go on, a, on the safari, she shrugged. I came to volunteer with a group from my university. I followed her through the halls and corridors to her squad in the main room, and there I found the chaos. Some children were dancing, others scaling volunteers' laps and arms. Still more were jumping in place as the uncontrollable excitement pummeled through their slender bodies. Green dress, a volunteer was pulling clothing out of a cardboard box. Mine, screeched every girl voice, and honestly, a few boy voices. They tore and clawed through the crowd, arms flailing out. Blue t-shirt, yellow socks, the voice continued. Hey, I have candy over here, another volunteer contributed. Even the walls seemed to be quivering with pleasure. I discovered the director in the back of the room, smiling wide. How many volunteer groups? Handouts. <laughs> How many volunteer groups do you get here, I shouted over the den. Sometimes two a month, he beamed proudly. The volunteers cover almost all our staff. You aren't providing jobs for any local workers, I repeated. Well, no. He paused a moment, sensing the need to make it sound better. We have so very many children here at Grace House. They need food and a home. They need help. Here they get help. Where do they come from before here, I encouraged, reaching for my notepad. Terrible families, no food, so poor, you know. Wait, they have families? Half of them have families. I was frozen for a moment, but the sad truth is such numbers are typical in African countries. 
After the wave of volunteers to orphanages in Ghana began to show signs of an abusive business enterprise, the Social Welfare Department organized a survey realizing that 90% of Ghanaian orphans have one or more living parent. The presence of volunteers visiting so many orphanages created, quote, jobs for children from families that could benefit from a few less mouths to feed. Some of these children have lost their parents and are emotionally, emotionally susceptible at this stage, I gently said. Isn't it damaging to further their never-ending cycle of abandonment from a revolving door of volunteers? That's just the way it is, the director crossed his arm. We do this to make a difference the best we can. You need to remember this is for the volunteer too. This experience is life-changing. I glanced at the group of college students taking selfies with the animated children. No doubt this will be a series of profile pictures. For a moment I wondered if the unidentified, romping homeless children seemed reduced to the same status of elephants and zebras on the field. So your grandfather sells shoes on the street so your sisters can eat? I asked again to make sure I had gotten the French right. Yeah, Hassan traced a stick around his bare toes. As far back as I can remember. Can I have your watch? No, I didn't tell you yet you could have it. But the other volunteers give me things, Hassan insisted. Well, I came here to play with you. No, excuse me. Well, I came here to play with you. I stared back stubbornly into his grinning eyes. Do you have an iPod in America? Yes. Can I have it? He had such lust in those small eyes. No, Hassan kept, keep telling me your the story about your grandpa. When I grow up, I'm going to America because I want to buy things like what the volunteers have. He pointed a stubby thumb at his bare chest. I'll be a rich man like in the movies. Hassan, has anyone told you about Jesus when they visited? I knelt down on his level. Yeah, he shrugged. I know about him. I pray to him when the volunteers come. Do you have angry birds on your iPod? The volunteers showed me that game. I know how to play that game. What else do the volunteers show you? Hassan began to mumble, not understanding the concern on my face. The last volunteers gave me things, he said, hopefully. Then she comments, this is the classic white savior complex, the worship of the land of the white man. Somehow, despite hearing that Jesus loves him, the message of material goodness has swept him further in devotion, and he will worship the white saviors for the spectacular contributions to his development, rather than the ostensible Jesus fellow. Will Hassan wake up tomorrow thinking about his grandpa selling shoes and determination to provide and sustain, or the next of regaling volunteers? Okay. So, obviously, uh, you'll have to finish this article. Uh, it's a very, very good, thoughtful article. Uh, at the end, it gets, I'm, I'm not sure it's a little bit politics there, but anyway, very thoughtful uh, young lady there. And uh, it just and it brings out uh, some concerns. And I'm just going to uh, try to be, I just want to say this. Um, you know, short-term mission trips are exploding every academy, every, you know, um, I, I, I hope that what we read there just helps us to realize that there is real danger in these things. Okay. Um, it's certainly not my place to tell people, you know, you know I've been like on 20 uh, short-term mission trips in my life, okay. Uh, I used to go to Romania a lot and and the Philippines more recently, but um, 
Um, at the very least, and this is just this is just me talking my opinion. Uh, in fact, I think I have a slide here on it. I didn't make the slide. I had it in my head. Okay. People should have some some skin in the game, at least. You know, uh, if a student writes letters to the church and the church gives them money and they go on a mission trip, it's, it's a little more of a vacation. This is my opinion. They should, have, they, they should be willing to work or something. Obviously, there's, um, like I said, I'm not making hard and fast rules, and there's always, you know, situations. Number one. Number two, I, I feel that all people going on a mission trip should take the time to, to learn a little bit about the country where they're going to, the culture, the background, how do they you know their history. I remember the first time I went to the Philippines, I said to the pastor, oh man, I saw on his face right away. And, and later, in the total context, somebody just mentioned to me that this is very offensive. Over there you go, you want him to come, it's like this, not like this. Okay. I mean, I, I literally saw it on his face. And that's just a very small thing. And, you know, we remained friends and all that, but I saw it on his face. Like, and um, um, extremely careful about giving things. Um, and, and, and really, there's people that are there. The best thing a short-term mission, I won't say the, one of the best things a short-term mission can do is support the full-time missionaries. Don't, you know, don't go there and add burden to them because they've got to feed you and everything, but be there to support them. Okay. And another thing is, and I'll just say this, I, I know it's not even in this state or whatever, and, but here's an academy group. They went to the Philippines. They went to the same island that I've been to several times, and I know for sure it costs you know, almost $2,000 to get to that island. So there's you know, let's say 15 kids, $2,000. That's. T I mean, you know how many pastors on that island could be supported for a year with $35,000? Every single one of them. Every single one of them. These kids went there. They had a VBS. I think they painted some. Okay. Now, we just have to admit that these short-term mission trips are for the sake and the benefit of us and our kids. Otherwise, you know, we would do things a lot differently, right? Yes? You think that's true of Maranatha? They go and they work hard. I've gone to lots of places. Yeah. Those kids get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and go work and build one-day churches or they put an orphanage and they build a wall. They paid for the blocks themselves. They didn't, uh, and we paid there. I'll tell you something about Maranatha. They're there at the invitation of the local people. They, they are there at the invitation of the local people. The local people, the local conference, whatever, has, has designated this is what we would like done. This is where we need it done. So they're working very closely with the local conference. And that's very important. Yes? Yeah, I guess what I've always kind of wondered about you know, some of those volunteers and type uh-huh. Like, you know, like you were pointing out, you know, how expensive it is to get there. Yeah. You know, surely they have people that are competent in the building. Oh, yeah. Laying bricks and you send a, 
a tenth of that money, they, they could build a whole building. Yeah, uh, and plus, they support the Again, right, that's right. Again, I'm not saying it's wrong. You know, if a, people, if a family wants to go to Hawaii for vacation, that's none of my business at all. So if they want to go on a mission trip, that's none of my business either. I'm simply saying there is danger of doing harm. I'm with you. I, I'm, I, I cut you off, I, obviously, but I'm da there's danger. You know, let's just be careful. Let's study I mean, those people aren't stupid. We think they are because we have more money than they are, but they are not. They know how much money we spend to get there. They're hoping, in many cases, they're hoping that our presence there will mean more money for their projects. You know, many times. So I'm just saying, I'm not saying it's wrong, but on these trips, we should get the most out of them. And, and I really believe uh, people should have their own skin in the game to one extent or, an, or another. Every, the people going on a mission trip. Yes. I know um, some of people who have gone to social media to raise money for mission trips. Uh -huh. When I first saw that, I thought, well, if you're going to social media to raise your funds to go on a mission trip, that's not really like you putting forth effort in it yourself. Right. Exactly. Like, if if I were to, uh, <laughs> if I were to. Uh, go on social media and let you know I'm going to go canoeing up in Canada this summer, could you give a little few donations? You might question me, right? Yeah. But I'll tell you, I, I enjoy just as much uh, going on a mission trip. Uh, to me, it's almost like a vacation, really. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, these are just something to think about. Again, I, I'm not the judge of anybody or any group of people, but they're really something to think about. Isn't a mission trip designed to just we have to remember yes and we're stewards we're stewards of the means that we spend this is our bibliography and uh, I just wanted to uh, just call your attention to it um, I guess it's self-explanatory especially since I'm behind in my time here those of you who work in uh, community services there uh, at the bottom, actually, Toxic Charity and Charity Detox, the last two books. I would recommend those two books. Uh, there you see uh, Travesty in Haiti and the Big Truck That Went By, two different books about Haiti, which is really, I mean, and I think I put both of these I rated PG, okay, in all seriousness. Uh, you may want to read that before you encourage your teenager to read them or whatever, but uh, you'll learn a lot about how things unfortunately work in some places. Uh, and uh, yeah, so a lot of good books there that uh, I gave you. I could add a lot more, but that's what I put. Okay, now we're going to uh, watch a video here, a, a, a short video clip. We're going to go into the, what I said in the introduction, and that is that <laughs> the power of the gospel is so important in helping the poor. You know, I saw a headline. I didn't actually click on it or read it, but apparently... Uh, um, what's his name? Oh man, my brain. Uh, who's the guy that uh, went to the professional basketball player that went to Korea? Dennis Rodman. Apparently, he's he's having financial problems. I think he's broke, and uh, it's pretty clear. Would you like to give some money to uh, Dennis Rodman because he's having a hard time paying his bills? That's a negative. Why not? Because he doesn't need money. He needs a change of heart, doesn't he? He needs Jesus. He, he had more money than I think all of us here put together ever had. Right? 
He needs Jesus. So we cannot help him without the power of the gospel. That's the bottom line. And uh, we're going to watch just a short minute and a half on that, uh, on that little thought there, okay? People that I helped start a small business in Rwanda was named Florian. And Florian started a gardening business and ended up giving him the tools and capital that he needed to get this business up and running. And after working with him for several months, I went to his home. And I recognized that his home had not changed at all from when I first helped him get a job. There was no impact on his family, no impact on his kids. His kids still weren't in school. There were no improvements. And it turns out that he was spending his increased profit on other women and on alcohol. And I remember feeling incredible letdown that I had this promise of, of microfinance and all of my enthusiasm that it was going to change lives. And yet I saw an individual that had a thriving business and yet his life and his family's life had not changed at all. And I remember at that moment recognizing there's got to be more than just in a change in a wallet for significant change to happen. And I think that is where certainly the church and the faith can... All right, so you get the point there. I thought that was a nice little section, so I put that in. Now I'm going to show you a, uh, a video about an orphanage situation in Haiti. In one of the books there, uh, Travesty in Haiti, in there, uh, the author was hired by, I, I can't remember if it was USAID, I think it was USAID, to go out and do kind of a survey of all the orphanages that they were supporting with food in Haiti. And this guy had an incredible experience. He would go and talk to somebody who had, you know, an orphanage, and he would talk to them about you know, well, how many kids do you have? Oh, I have, you know, 25 kids, and, you know, we feed them in the morning, in the afternoon, or, I mean, in the evening, and so on like this. And he'd say, well, can I, could I see, could we go see the kids? Uh, well, you know, they're busy now. Oh, well, I'd like to just see the orphanage if I could. Well, we don't actually have the orphanage yet. I mean, this was unbelievable. I mean, this was his experience, literally his experience. So, I'm, so that's amazing. And, that's, you know, I started with a very positive story from an orphanage because so I, I wanted to give the clear message that this certainly doesn't apply to every orphanage in any way, shape, or form. My name is Corrigan Clay, and my wife Shelly and I moved to Haiti in 2008 to adopt a child. And we were thinking at the time that we would probably start up an orphanage also. I saw a picture of a little Haitian kid on the internet and fell in love with the idea of Haiti and a child from an orphanage and being able to give a parentless child um, a family. So today, today, we met Wilson for the first time and he gets to stay with us in the hotel in Port-au-Prince, Haiti or somewhere near there. And he's my As we were pursuing adoption, the orphanage director had asked us if we wanted to meet the child's mother. And we were kind of surprised because the thought was, well, wasn't he abandoned by somebody or didn't he lose his parents or that kind of thing? The director of the orphanage said she comes to visit him every couple weeks. I was shocked and I said, you know, 
why does she come and see him? And he said, well, she loves him and she wants to make sure he's okay and she brings him gifts and things. Then when we met her, I asked her, you know, why did you bring him to the orphanage? And she, she said, I just didn't have enough money to feed him. I didn't have a good place to live. I was in City Soleil. There's like gangs and, and violence. And so the orphanage was the best solution for him. So we asked her, if, if you would have had a job, would you have kept your child? And she said, of course I would, yeah. And it was like this, this shock, you know, of I'm spending $20,000 on this adoption to be able to raise a child that this mother wants. And the injustice of that really took me. We began to have conversations with the families of these children and with the children themselves. In the orphanage we were in, there were 24 boys that we were taking care of at the time. Two of them did not have living parents. As we started to learn about other orphanages too and ask questions and things, we, we found out that was fairly typical. That I would say Conservatively, roughly 80% of the kids in orphanages in Haiti are not true orphans, but are poverty orphans. This is another kind of corruption, another kind of destruction of this whole system. When I did the research for care, and I wrote about this in Travesty, couldn't find any orphans that didn't have parents, they all had parents. And when you really get into it, well, of course they have parents, because an orphan's a coveted position. It's school, it's books, it's maybe even a visa, maybe even an adoption. But it does perverted things at the lower level of the system, you know? Some parents, because they cannot take care of their child, and they hear that somebody's opening an orphanage, because some donor wants to do good and wants to open an orphanage, because he hears that children, Haitian children are dying or suffering, the parent would turn their own kid to the orphanage and would often go visit the kid once a month. But you've relieved the parent of the obligation to educate his kid, but you've also drained that kid out of emotional ties, of the love of a mother, the respect of a father, and that kid growing up may not have all that sense of responsibility. So you're actually creating that cycle of, of destruction. After living in an orphanage for a year and getting to know the language and the culture and the people and really building relationships, we began to kind of see that the system of addressing the needs of orphans was actually a system that was creating orphans. The way that charitable organizations are addressing orphans in Haiti is symptomatic of a larger belief that says these are issues that must be addressed versus these are people that must be addressed. Issues are addressed institutionally, programmatically. People are addressed in their story, in reflexive dialogue, through questions and listening. There was one child in particular in the orphanage we worked in that when his adoptive family was coming to visit, I asked him, hey, are you excited? I mean, your mom and dad are coming. And he goes, they are my mom and dad. I said, oh, well, I know they're not yet, but they're, they're going to be. They're adopting you. They're going to be your family. He's like, no, they're never going to be my mom and dad. This child was about 14. He said, 
No, my mom and dad are here in Haiti. I know them. My Haitian parents told me that I'm like the special kid in the family that I get to go to the orphanage. I'm just gonna go to the United States with these people, but they're not really my family. I said, well, you know, their expectation is that you're gonna be a part of their family. And they're pro they'd probably be really hurt to know that you have no intention of really being a part of their family. We've adopted two Haitian children, Jackson and Ember. Ember's mother died after childbirth and Jackson's mother abandoned him at the gates of the orphanage. She came with him and then was supposed to bring back papers relinquishing him, but did not. This is Jackson right here. Um, he's, he's a big boy, but when he, was, uh, when he was in the orphanage, he actually almost died of starvation twice because this institutional approach at caring for kids, they were just plugging him with a bottle and they didn't know he was lactose intolerant. And so he was throwing up all his food and, and just almost, almost died twice, had to go to the hospital. And obviously now he's eating just fine. <laughs> How are you doing, Debbie? We're advocates for adoption. It is broken and not right that a kid would grow up without parents. That's the very same thing that influences us to say, don't get involved with orphanages and adoption that are separating kids from their parents. If I was in a personal financial crisis and I could not feed my child, I could no longer pay for their school supplies or for them to go to school, I didn't have enough money for them to ride the bus, whatever, and somebody from some other nation came in and said, hey, you know what, we've got a solution. What we'll do is we'll set up a, a house where all the kids that have that problem can come live. They're not gonna be your child anymore. You're just gonna have to give them to us, but we'll make sure they have everything they need. Is that the solution that you'd want? And I think most honest people would say, no, I wanna raise my own child. I just need a job. I need some way to make some money and I'm gonna take care of my kid. an intern who was there for the summer and she knew what my vision was as far as starting some sort of artisan thing because we had a bunch of people in our lives and there was about four women who had either given their kid up for adoption already or who were at risk for that and so she said can I invite them over for two days a week and just teach them how to make earrings I was like great let's do it Bonjour. December of 2009, we had a fair here in Haiti, and I think we sold $800 worth of product, and we were so excited. We kept growing. We had about probably 16 to 20 artisans working. It was in our house, in our living room, in our garage. And then probably 2011, we started getting into retail. We got involved with designers like Donna Karen. Um, we've been carried in stores like The Gap, Walmart. Disney has stuff. In 2011, in the month of December, we sold $100,000 worth of jewelry. We have about 220 people right now working. My vision is 1,000 people. When my family first came to Haiti, we had in our savings, it was about $35,000. I thought that we'd start an orphanage 
and then be asking people to help us sustain that. So it would be this constant need for help. Because we started a business, now the amount that we came with, that's the amount that we're averaging in income for our artisans every month. It's not a charitable like gift, Here, here's a bunch of money every month, but it's something that they can look at and say, this is mine, I earned it, it's something that I can choose what to do with it, and somebody out there valued what I did and purchased it. story for me. I was walking home one day and walked up to my gate and there's this woman sitting on the ground in the dirt with a baby in her arms. She was covered in scabies. Her baby's covered in scabies. They hadn't eaten. She came here looking for an orphanage. The last thing I wanted to do was send her to an orphanage. And I said to her, you know what? I'm going to make you a deal. Go get all your kids. Come back here. And I'm going to invite you to work with us. And I'm going to just try it. Here she is in Port-au-Prince with her kids. She's not making any money yet, so she goes to live in a tent. Her kids were in a horrible situation, but she started to work. And she is an amazing woman. She's an entrepreneur. Within about three months, she had probably 10 employees of her own. She was talking about needing a house. I said, I don't have money for a house for you, but let's break it down into something that you can imagine. I said, if you need $2,000 for land for your home and you're getting $12 on a necklace, how many necklaces is that? It's less than 200 necklaces. And her brain just about exploded. I mean, you could see this click in her mind. Her eyes opened up, and she's like, I can make 200 necklaces. That's not a problem. And it was about six months or something, and she bought her own property. <laughs> She did it herself. It's two bedrooms. It's her own. She never has to pay rent again. And she's now changed her life. You see mostly men here, which a lot of people are surprised about. We started out with women trying to do a women's work initiative because that's sort of the thing to do, right? And um, we found that fathers are parents too. <laughs> and we also found that in a family situation, if mothers are all that is needed, what role is there for a father? And that sort of contributes to the situation in Haiti of fatherlessness. Um, most of the guys here are fathers, and um, they're working to take care of their kids. He's got a baby on the way, he's got two children, he's got a baby, you know, and they're all doing a good job being fathers to their children right now. 
I think my biggest concern in even doing this interview is that I don't want to come across as critical to those who have helped and who have tried to help. As we grow and we learn and we figure things out in the same way that I've gone through that journey, that there is a better way to help. Giving power to the parents is exponential in how many kids you can help. I've estimated with 250 employees, we're helping at least 750 children, possibly 2,000 people if you think they're supporting their whole families. I mean, there's no orphanage that can be sustainable to take care of 750 children. I mean, an orphanage of 100 kids has to have a minimum of $400,000 a year. And they have to fundraise for that. And they have to pull out their flies on child pictures, you know, in order to do that, which then creates this whole model of those poor people, those poor desolate people. They're not desolate. They have hope. They have a way to get out of it. There's a way to fix it. That, to me, was a fantastic put everything together, uh, the principles we've been talking about, and uh, a powerful, uh, lasting change. And, you know, just it just uh, illustrates these people are made in the image of God. They're capable. Just need to sometimes help clean up the lake or give them a little start or whatever. Um, but it's very, very... I just, yeah. So, um, while I'm changing, I have another uh, uh, video to show you, this time having to do, again, with the power of the gospel. Uh, in the end, is, um, I mean, it's, it's just absolutely essential. Yes? Do you want to um, revisit the concept of the power of the lake? Because some folks are new here today. Okay, I can do that. So you all know the saying that, um, you know, you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, you teach him how to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. And I'm simply saying that that is probably true in the United States or whatever, but many, many of these people, um, either they don't have access to the lake, okay, they don't have access to the lake in the terms of, you know, free trade, whatever, high tariffs, keeping some of these countries from like that, or the lake that they're fishing in is totally, totally polluted in the sense of uh, corruption, uh, you know, uh, high taxes, uh, lack of private property rights, lack of rule of law, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, there are plenty of people uh, in these countries that, you know, know how to fish, as it were. You know, they're, they're not stupid. They're skilled. But they have no lake to fish in. That's the problem. They have no lake to fish in. And so that's what I mean. And uh, I'll tell you, Haiti is, you know, if you read that book, Travesty in Haiti, by the way, this kind of somewhat rough character. He's a PhD, uh, anthropologist, but uh, he's the one that wrote that book. He's, you've seen him make comments here about the system being broken and so on. He's the one that wrote that book, Travesty in Haiti. I mean, if you read that book, it's almost unbelievable, the mess there. And I, I would say, you know, somebody here is, I think one of their uh, 
kids, teenagers or whatever is, is planning to go to Haiti, I would read that book. And, and uh, uh, it, it's, Haiti is, I mean, you've got, it, there's, no, there's very little rule of law there. I mean, it's, it's sometimes mob justice, literally. Um, and, I mean, there's voodoo there, there's, whoa. So I would just, I would, I'm not saying, I got a couple of Haitian young people in my church, and I've kind of talked to them about going there as missionaries, you know, but uh, I wouldn't go there lightly. Um, anyway, so uh, we're talking then about the power of the gospel, which is really the only hope in many cases. Talked about Dennis Rodman earlier. Um, where I watch this, I want to try to restate. I, I was talking about short-term mission trips. I tried to make it clear that I'm not against short-term mission trips. Um, I, I do feel that some that you know, like we we don't allow young people to drive a car without a certain amount of knowledge and training, right? And I hope we see in just what we've been able to cover in this class that going to a foreign country, especially as an American. Uh, there is danger there. There are people that see you as a very wealthy person, as you are. Um, and, you know, people should learn something about the country, the culture, the history. Uh, they should, uh, you know, the mind, having a mind for the poor, that was our first session. We should really try to have an understanding of what they're doing. That's why I think they should have skin in the game. They should earn at least some of that money. It may not be possible during school year or whatever for the kids, but I'm not talking about just kids. I'm talking about adults. Most adults do pay their own way, but anyway, um, I'm just saying, you know, there's danger there. And to be honest, uh, in the, the literature, now this is not Adventist literature. I, I haven't been able to access this. In, well, I have a little bit, but there's no there's no, while short-term mission trips are exploding, and I could take the time and read you some advertisements. This is outside of our church. You know, come to wherever, and then we're also going to have time to shop at the, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, it sounds like a travelogue. It sounds like, you know, it's a business. In many places, it's a, there, are, there are businesses. That's what they do. They send people. They'll say, Change the world. You know, I read about one group, and, and the teenagers went, and they, they literally wore T-shirts. says, we are here to serve the leastest. I mean, how do those people feel? They know they're the leastest. And, uh, and, and so I would suggest a lot of these mission trips, I wouldn't even call them a mission trip. Because the, the kids think, we're there to save these people. A lot of times these people are more spiritual than, you know. I would call it a learning trip or, or something like that. We're here to learn. Anyway, those are some comments. Uh, I hope they're balanced. But, um, all right, so I have a few seconds here before I get to this section I actually want to show you. I think it'll speak for itself. Uh, the power of the gospel, okay? Where to acknowledge and realize and, and find their creative potential. What Africa needs is not aid. Africa needs love. Needs someone to understand them, a human being. Needs someone to believe in them. You can do it. Not just like eat this and go to sleep. And then when I need you, I will come and tell you sleep or stand up. We are Christians and I think that it is our job to 
at each other and look at the poor person from anywhere in the world and be able to say, am I treating this person like I would have loved to be treated? Am I really looking at this person and treat them as though it was Christ standing there? Every simple person, the one, the homeless standing there who doesn't know where he is, there is a sword there. There is God who have made them, is, is an act of God. Immaculate is proof of the gospel's power to transform even the most horrible situation. Two decades ago, Rwanda was one of the most desperate countries in the world. A civil war had been brewing for years, and fully half of the country's population was malnourished. A USAID study from 1993 listed Rwanda as the poorest country on the planet. Then things went from bad to worse. In April of 1994, some members of the Hutu majority began going house to house slaughtering the Tutsi minority. In the weeks that followed, almost a million civilians were murdered while a battle for power raged between government soldiers and a rebel army. Thousands of Rwandans left the country to live in abject poverty in refugee camps. The situation seemed hopeless. I want to mention to you that this girl that's talking she was away, you know, at a boarding school. Her father wanted to come home for the weekend. She said, oh, I, I've got, a, you know, some, some exams next week. I, her father said, no, you know, you're our daughter. We want to see you. I want you to come home. And she came home, and uh, every single student in that school was killed in her, in her, when she, on that weekend. Yeah. Seventeen years later, Rwanda is transforming itself. Peace has replaced war, and there are great strides towards reconciliation. Immaculate has played a crucial role in the healing process by telling her own story of tragedy, suffering, hatred, and forgiveness. A story that begins in a hiding place in the midst of the genocide. My dad sent me to this man was a Protestant pastor, a neighbor who was from the other tribe, the Hutu tribe. He came and took me and showed me this tiny bathroom in his bedroom with eight people sitting on the top of each other. One time they came to hunt for us, the killers hired by the government, fed by the government and drinks. And one guy stood outside. I can hear him. He went to school with me, primary school. And he spoke and he said, I have killed 399 cockroaches. That's how he called us. And he said, I want Immaculate to be the 400. That would be a good number. And it wasn't just again like, you know, they're coming once, if they go, that's it. But they were coming many times. And I remember when they mentioned about killing my brother and talking how they, he, was a, he had a master's degree, how they have to break his head to see how the brain of somebody who has a master's degree looks like. I was so angry that I spent all my time plotting in my mind. I was thinking about becoming a military, just like shoot them. Every movie, few movies I've seen in my life, or this action movie, you just feel like you're playing them. It was bad, like in my mind I was so angry. My skin was just burning, like you are on fire. 
so angry and so fearful at the same time. In hiding, Immaculate tried to find peace by praying the Lord's Prayer, but she kept hitting up against one particular verse. And I remember when I was saying our Lord's Prayer, and I remember reaching to that part that said, forgive us as we forgive those who trespass against us. And all of a sudden, it was almost like a picture of all the healers was in front of me. Thousands, if not millions. I remember one time I said, okay, let me face it. I'm incapable of forgiving. I don't even think it makes sense. I went on my knees, I put my hands up, surrendering, and I told God, if you know how to forgive, help me out. I don't know how to do it. Only because I wanted to go through those prayers, so at least I can be clean in God's eyes. Until one day, meditating on the death of Christ when he was dying on the cross, and I remember the last moment when he said, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they do. And when he said those words, especially that part that said, they don't know what they do, it was then I said, okay, now I can understand. I can understand the mind that is blinded by hatred, the mind that is blinded by selfishness, the mind that is blinded by power, love of power, love of money. And it was almost like Jesus was telling me, pray for them to change instead of hating them. Are you going to be like them? Are you going to do what you hate most, which is the genocide, the hatred? Are you going to do that? Or are you going to try to change them? So then I started to pray for them. It made all the sense. Immaculate survived the genocide, but before it was over, the genocideers found and killed her mother, her father, and two of her brothers. Despite this, she set out to spread God's message of forgiveness and reconciliation. Many others are involved in this crucial work, including Janet Ukubana, who grew up in a Ugandan refugee camp before returning to her native Rwanda after the genocide. A decade later, Janet and her sister began a basket weaving company and soon realized the need for Hutu and Tutsi to reconcile and learn to work together. And so they decided to use their business to help bring this about. People are still healing from the wounds of genocide. Others were still possessed by trauma. So now bringing them together was another question for me. You have both sides of the genocide. We have the women who have husbands in prison. You have widows. You have girls heading households. Looking at a woman whose husband is in prison but who has killed her family, bringing them together was another challenge. So I had to get to talk to each one of them. And I was telling them, when you come to this place to meet me, I don't want to hear the stories because I also have a story. I want us to focus on what we are doing. I started now merging groups of survivors and uh, other groups, and now the tension now started reducing. At one particular moment, one weaver came up and said, my husband killed your family, and I really feel sorry about that. You've been my friend since we started, this, we stayed in this village. I want to say sorry on behalf of my family. And actually, she forgave them. It was featured on CNN. It was an event in Rwanda, and they celebrated the reconciliation.
Rwandan Anglican Bishop John Rutiana has also been deeply involved in the process of reconciliation. He's partnered with Chuck Colson's Prison Fellowship to minister to those imprisoned for participating in the genocide. Through their work, many of the genocideers have found their way to Christ and have reconciled with the families of their victims. Bishop John also started an orphanage in the aftermath of the genocide and welcomed Hutu and Tutsi. He emphasizes that what is impossible with man is possible with God. Recently, I was preaching in Saddleback with, the, with Rick Warren's church. I was telling the people at Saddleback that we have no luxury of time to wait until the pain is over in order to reconstruct our nation. It's now. If there is any time, it's now. When we still bury the remains of our people, when we still cry and miss those we, we love and cared for, it's now that we have to build our nation. And, and our efforts are real. Come and visit my school, Sunrise. Most of the students are orphans, and, and some of them still bear the scars of the machetes on them. Some of them have seen their parents hacked to death, but they, they are all Hutus and Tutsis working and studying together, eating together, staying in the same dormitories, and they have a common hope for this nation. And they love each other today, and they have a common purpose of developing into servant leaders of the nation and, and upholding and serving their nation. And, and this recovery, therefore, is a commitment into the future and, and, and the transformational power into, into the brokenness of a nation. And I want the world to know God invests into the broken once we surrender. And this type of surrender, and this type of not wanting to revenge and, 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 and killing people in jails because they killed a million people, but engage, invest into, the, into their repentance and transformation and recover them back into society to join us into the reconstruction. That's the miracle and that's the power. One of the most interesting articles that I read was Matthew Paris's article, an atheist take on why Africa needs God. And what he said was there is a difference when he saw the faith community involved in poverty alleviation. And he saw a difference from the programs that were just going in and just trying to help people but had no ability to talk about a moral foundation. And so they were doing all this great work but without a moral foundation and he saw that that really crippled the impact of the goods and services that they were providing. And so his article says that there is a difference, that Africa does need God if it's going to work its way out of poverty. And, and it's true, without that moral foundation, I've seen this in, in the places that I've traveled too, that the impact is always going to be limited. But I guess I find it a little bit surprising that Matthew would say that Africa needs God and the United States doesn't or, or Europe doesn't. I think that foundation, that need for a moral base is the true foundation for every single country. And, and Europe and the U.S., we've benefited from having that moral base and we turn away from that moral base to our own decline. Good Christians can and do disagree about the best ways of helping the poor. But whatever we do, we must never forget the gospel, both because it's at the center of our faith, but also because it's the most transformative force that the world has ever seen. As C.S. Lewis once said, those Christians who've done the most for this world have focused a lot on the next.
the apostles, the early Christians, the men who built the Middle Ages, and Christians like William Wilberforce, who abolished the slave trade. All of them left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. Lewis concluded, it's because Christians have ceased to think about the other world that we've become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. Clearly, Jesus came here to bring eternal salvation to us. He came here to make men whole. And uh, I'm so glad that uh, we can have Jesus as our guide as we seek uh, to do our part in, in helping poverty. Uh, now, there's one more very short clip that I want to show you. And uh, this I was supposed to show you at the beginning. I, I didn't look at my list, so it's a little anticlimactic, but not really. It does. This is, uh, and so we talked yesterday about microfinance, microloans, and so on. There's also um, lending clubs. I've read about this in the Philippines. This one here is in Africa. But lending clubs, groups of people, uh, maybe with some outside help and guidance, but groups of people who meet together and they put their money in a pot, and then they can borrow from that pot based on the the guidance and the vote of the whole group, whether that's a good thing, and so on. And you'll, we're going to have just a few minutes to look at one of these lending groups. You'll notice there's a very strong spiritual um, component to it. It's uh, actually four minutes long. My name is John. Ever since I was small, I knew it was good to have a farm. I grow corn, also beans, cassava, rice, and potatoes. Here in Malawi, the hunger season is from January and February, when most people have eaten all the corn that they grew earlier that year. It can be difficult as a farmer to wait for the rains, so it is very important to work hard once the rains come. When I heard about the savings group, I knew it would be a good thing for me. Today, we're visiting a savings group formed by Hope International's partner, the Presbyterian Church. They have been saving together for more than a year. Most of the members are farmers, and their savings help them manage the ups and downs of their growing seasons. Let's look in on their savings meeting.
At this point, the group leader has welcomed everyone, and they've had a time of worship and prayer. Then they studied the word together, looking at a parable from Matthew 25. Now comes the work section. Each member hands in savings for the week, and they can also take out loans from the savings pool to use in their homes and businesses. After this, they'll wrap up. I always like to be working, so that's why I am busy as a carpenter. I've used loans from the small group to buy materials like wood pranks. My favorite things to make are chairs, beds, and cabinets. In my family, we are seven people. Two of my children are my wife's sister's children. She passed away, so I am the one who cares for them. I do everything I can to support them. At the end of the saving cycle, when we are all receiving our savings, I feel good because I know I have saved this myself. I use my savings to buy fertilizer, to buy corn, for school fees especially, for anything we might need in my family. I think God looks at me and says, there is John, I put him in this world to help, to serve, to do jobs that I have sent his way. When you are part of the church, you are hearing more from other Christians. So through preaching, through friends, through reading the Bible, things can change. So we talked about a lot of things, principles, uh, and time for our closing prayer. <laughs> Father in heaven, um, we want to be used by you we want to be a part of the great chain let down from heaven to uplift humanity and to do it in a way that is truly for their well-being both temporal and eternal just pray that you'll bless the time that each one has invested into this seminar that it will bear fruit um, in their lives and in the lives of some struggling individuals. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.